allow me to add my word of welcome to you all as we are starting a brand new series that we are calling Church Made for More. And the reason why we're doing this series is because when it comes to that term church, there are a lot of misconceptions about it. In fact, uh, recently our team was looking at just some demographic data in the communities where our church sites are located. And specifically, we wanted to know what were the attitudes of people who maybe don't go to church uh, when it comes to things like Christianity and church and religion. And what we found is that there were actually three big trends when it came to those who maybe are a little bit skeptical of the church or disconnected from the church, and that's this. Uh, when it comes to church, uh, they find that worship tends to be boring and uninteresting. They distrust organized religion and religious leaders, and they believe Christians are out of touch, judgmental, and overly strict. That's the perception they have of the church and what it means to be a part of the church. And as we were thinking about that and wrestling with that, I have to wonder if maybe some of the reasons why they have those ideas about the church is because we as Christians have kind of forgotten what it means to be the church. Here's what I mean. I think that when we talk about church, we tend to think about it as a place that we go to for an hour a week that is comforting, yes, reassuring and nice, sure, but ultimately optional. And the reason I say optional is because even among those who would say that they are regular church attenders, what they mean by the word regular is once a month. It seems that both people inside the church and those outside the church have some big misconceptions about what it means to actually be the church, which is why we're doing this series. Because we want to go back and look at the very earliest descriptions of what the church is and what it means to be a part of it. Specifically, we want to look at the book of Acts, in which we find that the church is a powerful, countercultural, awe-inspiring community of people who literally turned the world upside down. Let me say that again. In the book of Acts, we find that the church is a powerful, countercultural, awe-inspiring community of people who literally turned the world upside down. And during this series, we are invited to once more see what it means to be the church as we're invited to become a part of a larger story, become members of a larger community who are called to a greater mission because we've been given a better life. It's really what this series is all about. That's why we're calling it Church Made for More. But where we wanna start is we wanna start by looking at the moment that the church was born in Acts chapter two. So let me go ahead and set the scene for us for just a moment. We are told that it is the day of Pentecost. And that doesn't really mean a whole lot to us as modern uh, 21st century people. But let me tell you a little bit about this. It's 49 days after Easter. After this moment when Christians believe Jesus, their savior who had died on Good Friday, had risen again from the dead. It's nine days after he rose again into heaven and the disciples, Jesus' followers, are gathered together in the city of Jerusalem for the festival of Pentecost. Now, the festival of Pentecost was a festival that was a harvest festival, but it also commemorated the giving of the law to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. This moment when uh, they had been rescued by God from slavery in Egypt, they were brought to Sinai and their leader Moses came down from the mountain with God's laws and commandments for them. And so there are Jewish people from all around the Mediterranean world gathered in that city at this moment. And it's there, as the disciples are waiting in Jerusalem, that God shows up. Here's what we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 4. 
It says that they were all gathered together and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, obviously, this caused quite a bit of a stir within the city. A crowd begins to form, wondering what's going on. And it would be easy to say that the reason the crowd was forming was because of how strange this all was. They'd heard this sound like a loud, rushing wind. We see these uh, little flames of fire resting on people. Suddenly, they all start speaking in different languages. And yeah, it's a bizarre scene. It's strange. But one of the things that stands out to me when you read this text closely is the reason that the crowds give for why they're gathering, what it is exactly that they're paying attention to. This is what they say. They say this, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Yeah, the scene is certainly a bizarre one, but what really draws the crowd together is the story that these people are telling. The story about God and, and his wonders, that God and the things that he has done. And so what is that story? What's, what's the story that they're telling? And that's really what the rest of the chapter of Acts 2 is all about, is the story that's at the heart of this community that shapes everything that they do. We learn that one of Jesus' followers, Peter, stands up and addresses the crowds, and he gives kind of his first sermon. And there are two really important details that I want us to note uh, in what he says to them. The first thing that he does is he quotes from their prophets. These people who centuries before had, had come to the people of Israel to tell them what God would one day do. He speaks about the day of the Lord says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And he goes on to quote this incredible passage from Joel, which talks about what the prophets referred to as the day of the Lord. It was the day when God would return and he would make everything new. A day when he would come and he would fix all that's broken, all that's wrong with our world, re-knit it, refashion it together and bring life and restoration and yes, salvation and freedom to his people. This was the thing that the people of Israel had been longing for for generations, this day when God wouldn't just remain in heaven or stand at arm's distance, but where he would set up his residence here now in the midst of his creation. That's what they were longing for. And what Peter says is he says that day is today. It's happening now. What God promised centuries before is reaching its fulfillment here in this moment. And then he goes on and he, and he points to their hopes for a king. He talks about their ancestor, David, this king who was seen as the one who defended God's people, the one with whom God had made this covenant, this promise, this relationship to set up a kingdom, a kingdom, yes, of justice and of righteousness. Again, the things that the people were longing for. And Peter says that that king has now come. A king has come in Jesus. He's the Messiah, the promised Savior that they'd been looking for. But here's what Peter goes on to tell them. He says, look, you are looking for an earthly king and a physical, culturally specific kingdom. But that's too small. There's more to the story. That's what he goes on to tell them. He says that all the things that you've been longing for, that you've been looking for, that story that you've seen yourselves as a part of is far larger than any of you could possibly have anticipated. 
And, and this is important for us because uh, oftentimes we live life pursuing stories that are far too small. Here's what I mean. We love stories. As human beings, stories are kind of hardwired into us. Doesn't matter what culture you visit, down through the ages, people have told stories to make sense of our world and of our place in it. I personally love reading stories to my kids and watching movies. Why? Because these stories sweep us up into something larger. And the best stories, the reason that they're timeless is because they give us a sense that we're, we're connecting with something that's deeper and truer about our world. In fact, I think of the New York Times bestselling book, All Things Shining. It's written by uh, two philosophers, Hubert Dreyfus and Sean Kelly. And they talk about how we desperately need stories. They, they, they note kind of the dilemma that we have as modern people, and this is what they write. They say, how, given the kinds of beings that we are, is it possible to live a meaningful life? Or more particularly, where are we to find the significant differences among the possible actions in our lives? What they're saying is they're asking the question, where do we find meaning, uh, meaning as modern people? And, and how do we find wisdom in order to be able to navigate the complexities of life well? Their answer is stories. That's what stories do for us. In fact, the subtitle of their book is Reading the Western Classics to Find Meaning in a Secular Age. What they're rightly saying is that we need the wisdom contained in these stories to help us. We need something more than our own personal experiences and opinions and preferences in order to help us live lives of meaning and purpose. The problem is, is that we disagree on the antidote. See, Dreyfus and Kelly would say that this is why we just need to read the Western classics, things like, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey and, and Moby Dick and all these other stories. They say these stories contain kind of the collected wisdom of the Western world. And if you can just see these stories as these beautiful things that provide us with guidance, then that's really all you need in order to navigate life well. And that's true up to a certain point. Certainly the reason why these stories are timeless is because there's something in them that kind of hooks into the deepest desires and longings of our heart. But the reality is, is that a story in and of itself isn't enough when the shine wears off. When reality actually hits, we want to know, is there something more to this or is it simply a story? Because what happens when our chosen story conflicts with someone else's chosen story? When the very values suddenly are at odds, well, then we're back to this kind of might makes right sort of world in which whoever's the strongest, it's their story that gets to win out. Or what happens when suddenly the harshness of our world breaks in and shatters the illusion? You see, this can lead us to conflict with one another. It can lead us to disillusionment, the very problem that they're seeking to address in our modern world, this sense that life really is meaningless, that there's nothing more beyond what we can see and experience. You see, what gives a story weight is whether or not it's grounded in something beyond itself and whether or not it points us to something that truly is there and truly satisfies the deepest longings of the human heart. I think that this is what C.S. Lewis was getting at in his book, Mere Christianity. I want to read this quote. It's a little long, but I think it kind of helps us understand why this is such an important point. Here's what he writes. 
The Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. And if that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or to be unthankful for those earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which we are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. So what Lewis is saying when he, when he writes, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. When he writes that, when he says that, it's no illogical leap. It's a recognition that not only does it matter which story we cling to, but it matters what that story is pointing us toward. Is it pointing us toward that thing which ultimately is going to satisfy the deepest longings of, their, of our hearts? And that's what Peter is saying here in Acts chapter 2 to the people. He's saying that there is such a thing as a story that supersedes all other stories, and it's the story of Jesus. And the reason why is because it's a story that's true, that actually happened. Notice at the very end of his sermon, he says this, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He's saying, look, what you long for, you have actually been able to see in the events that you are all present for. He's pointing them to something that happened right in front of their very eyes in time, in space, and in history. That's the reason why Christians constantly point back to the resurrection of Jesus, because it's not just a nice story. Our claim is that it actually took place, that there's evidence that we can point to, and we base everything that we believe on that. In fact, Paul at one point says this, if Christ was not raised from the dead, then we are of all people most to be pitied. He's basically saying, look, if, if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, you don't have to listen to anything else that we say. We are willing to bank everything on it because it actually took place. That's how we know the story's true. It's a bigger story that's taking place here now that we can investigate, that we can experience. And what's so amazing about it is that we're invited into it. We're invited to become a part of it. Peter is saying that the resurrection story points to the satisfaction for the deepest longings of our hearts. That if we long for a world without pain, suffering, and death, if we desire a world of love and light and life, one in which there are no more goodbyes, and where justice, not oppression, has the final word, he says, look to Jesus. Because in the resurrection, what we find is that there is a life beyond death. That there is a God who loves this world so much he's come into it to rescue it. 
And that what you see on Easter Sunday is just the beginning of the much bigger story that he's writing in time and space and history, that there will come a day when just as he was raised from the dead, so he will raise all things. He will make everything new, and the invitation is to come and be a part of that story. You know, one of my my favorite stories, favorite movies are those in which the main character is suddenly swept up into something so much bigger than themselves. I love the Lord of the Rings for that very reason, the Chronicles of Narnia. It's because these characters, these children or these hobbits are suddenly swept up into something so much bigger than they are. And that's exactly how Peter ends his message that when the people turn to him and they say, so what do we need to do? How are we supposed to respond to this story? He says this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. There's a lot to unpack in just those two verses, but let's break it down for just a second. The first thing he says is he says, repent. That word simply means to turn to turn from one way of going and turn to another. He's saying, turn away from the stories that don't actually satisfy and toward the one that does. If you've been living for your job and you're finding that that's not satisfying, turn. If you've been trying to find unconditional love in one relationship after another and they just keep disappointing, turn to the one who loves you unconditionally. Whatever story you're a part of that isn't meeting those deepest longings of your heart, it's because you're in the wrong story. Turn to the one story which satisfies those longings that were built into you by God. Repent. Turn to the story that matters most. Second thing he says is be baptized. Beautiful thing about baptism is in baptism, we are swept up into a new life. We're given a new status and a new identity. We're claimed as God's own children. Oftentimes we try to find our identity in things that don't last, the approval of others or the successes that we win for ourselves, but those things are so fading, so fleeting, and we rightly feel dissatisfied and rejected when it never pans out. But he's saying, no, God loves you so much. He calls you his child, and in baptism you are given that new status as a child of God, a new identity which can never be taken from you. But baptism does so much more than that. He says it's a baptism for forgiveness. What that means is you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be perfect to win God's love and approval. You are forgiven and precious in his sight. And then he goes on and says, and we'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What that means is that God himself will dwell with us. In Old Testament times, God's Holy Spirit dwelled in specific places and only specific people could approach. He dwelled in the temple and only the high priests were welcome to come near. But now Peter is saying, because of Jesus, God's Holy Spirit can dwell in your heart. He goes with you wherever you go and he will never leave you or forsake you. And finally, he says this, and this promise is for you, your children, and all who are far off, all those whom the Lord our God will call. What he's saying is it's for everyone. Church isn't meant to be some sort of exclusive club for the people who figured it out and got their lives together. No, he's saying it's for everyone. Every single person is welcome in God's family. Turn away from the stories that don't satisfy and become a part of the one that does. If that's what you desire, Peter says, then come. Receive what only God can give you. 
That's part of the reason why we celebrate baptisms in our church. Why the first Sunday of every, uh, every other month, we actually have families coming to the waters to, to have their children be baptized or adults coming to waters to be baptized themselves because we understand that in that moment, we are swept up into something so much bigger. We're given the gift of salvation and forgiveness and new life and identity as God's children and God's presence dwelling in our lives. Baptism isn't just some outward ritual that we do because we feel like we're joining some sort of church club. It's actually God working grace into us. And if you're sitting here and you're like, I, I want to be baptized. I've never received that gift. I want to be a part of that larger story. We would love to celebrate that gift with you. That if you're worshiping with us in person, talk to your site pastor. Ask them to tell you about baptism and, and what it could be like to be baptized. If you're worshiping with us online, you know, we would love to direct you to our baptism page where you can sign up and, and we would love to have a conversation with you about baptism. And if you're at home and you're like, I I'm not sure if I'm ready to kind of come out to church yet, we would love to talk with you. We'll baptize you in your home. The point is, we don't want anything to stop you from being a part of this story because this is a gift that God desires to give you through Jesus. That's why being a part of the church is so beautiful because it's here in the church that we're part of a, a bigger community that's captivated by a larger story, a community that's, that's called together by God's love and his grace and his forgiveness, a community that is then shaped by that story living out that calling to bring God's good news, his grace and his salvation to all people. That's what we're going to be talking about throughout the rest of this series, but it all starts here with the bigger story that we're called to be a part of, with knowing who God is, what he's done for us, and being swept up into the story that he's writing, not just in the world, but with our very lives. And so it's to that end that I wanted to close in a word of prayer. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we give you thanks that you are a God who doesn't stand far off and simply gives a, give us truths to acknowledge or laws to obey. You tell us that you are writing a story in time and space and history and that you've swept us up into it. You've invited us to experience the life that we've always longed for and we can know it's true because you came, you died, and you rose again. And because of that, we can know that this isn't just some sort of nice idea that we cling to, but it's a real story that satisfies the deepest longings of our hearts. Lord, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, I pray that we'd be captivated by that story once more. And for those who, for the first time, are beginning to hear about that story and we want to be a part of it, Lord, I pray that you would sweep us up into it that we'd respond to the invitation to repent, to be baptized, and to receive forgiveness and the gift of your Holy Spirit, so that together we may proclaim the glories of you who've called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, our Savior and our friend, that we say, Amen.